is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. I am joined today by Dominic Frisbee. Dominic is a financial writer and comedian and one of the most interesting commentators, I think, in the whole range of financial topics and issues from cryptocurrency to monetary and economic policy and history. He is the author of an excellent book, which I really enjoyed, Daylight Robbery, How Tax Shaped Our Past and Will Shape Our Future. Dominic, thanks so much for being with me. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Ashton. A, p- a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. I uh, wanted to start off with sort of the, the thesis of your book, and I want to ask you some questions based on that. So your book makes a point about how taxation shapes civilization, how it's essentially it's sort of like, like a foundational piece that sort of shapes society, um, and the rest of culture and politics follows from that. How does taxation shape civilization? Well, when you talk about taxation, everyone immediately thinks, oh, God, this is going to be boring because it's such a boring mm-hmm. subject and it's something that accountants talk about while they look at spreadsheets. But in fact, the central thesis of my book is that tax has shaped the entire course of civilization. Every great event in history, if you look at it, if you study it, you will find some kind of tax story, usually an untold one behind it, without which that event would have unfolded in a very different way. Every war was paid for by some kind of tax. Every conquest was about taking over the tax base, the land, the labor, the produce, the profit. Every revolution was arising up against some kind of injustice perpetrated by the tax system. Most political arguments today are ultimately an argument about taxation. Who pays for this? You know, they're arguing about what, you know, Republican Democrat is basically an argument about a few percent of GDP, whether it's publicly paid or privately paid. Um, And once you start to look at the world through this prism of taxation, you realise so much becomes clear why things happened, why things are as they are and what is going to happen. And the idea of some kind of um, duty to the greater collective, even the word duty is, you know, Mm -hmm. we talk about duties, um, but this idea of the duty to the greater collective probably existed in the hunter-gatherer societies that predated civilization. But even if you look at ancient Mesopotamia, the very first written records we have, very first examples of, of writing are tax documents. And taxation is as old as civilization itself. And in fact, there has never been a civilization without taxation of some kind. And there's, you know, there's, there have been civilizations with very low levels of taxation. There have been civilizations where taxation was voluntary, such as in ancient Athens. They had liturgy, which was a voluntary taxation, but there still existed taxes. So tax, I'm afraid, as your um, founding father, Benjamin Franklin, said, mm-hmm. is inevitable. As, as inevitable as death. But mm-hmm. there are better ways to tax people and there are worse ways to tax people. 
I actually see tax as a measure of freedom. You can measure freedom by the extent to which you are taxed. So at one extent, you might have, um, you know, an, an anarchy. Let's say anarchy actually existed in, 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 in outside the theoretical world. Well, in, in an anarchy, an ordinary person would own 100% of his own labour. In, in the social democracies of today, we own 40, 50% of our own labour, something like that. Um, by the time you die, roughly 50% of everything you ever earn will have been taken from you by the state. And in a totalitarian state, the numbers are much higher, 75, 80%. In North Korea, I don't think a worker owns any of his own labour. It's all taken from him. And in exchange, he's given a bit of food and shelter, I guess. Um, in a slave society, the slave, he doesn't even own his own body, let alone his own labour. Mm -hmm. So those are the most extreme examples of, you know, 80, 90, 100 percent tax and then zero percent tax at the other end. And we're in the social democracies of today, somewhere in the middle. And I would like to see us more towards 15, 20 percent tax rather than 40, 50. Taxation as a percentage of GDP is over 50 percent if you include inflation. Mm -hmm. which most people don't, mm -hmm. but they should. You mentioned before that, in, in talking about the feudal system, that the serfs owned, what, like essentially 50% of their labor? So the 50% of the time they had to work on the feudal lord's land, and then 50% of the time they could sort of till their own soil. And in social democracies in, in Europe and to a certain extent in the United States, probably in California, you're looking at maybe 40-ish percent uh, when you factor everything in. Yeah, we, it's thought that the serfs in Europe were basically the descendants of the slaves from the Roman Empire. And even though the Roman Empire crumbled, the serfs remained mm -hmm. and they never got their freedom. And they, if you owned land, the serfs came with the land. A serf couldn't like go, actually, I'm going to leave and go and go somewhere else. You couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. um, if they did, they became outlaws. And... The idea of a surface, he would be given a plot, of, a plot of land to work, to till. And three days of that week, he would have to till his Lord's land. And the other three days, he would have to, he could till his own. And so effectively, that was a 50% tax rate. And mm -hmm. Sunday, he got off. <laughs> Sunday was his. And mm -hmm. today, roughly 50% of our labour is earned in, in the social democracies of today. So there are comparisons. Um Obviously, life is considerably better today right. than it was back then. And if you don't want to work, well, you can find ways of not having to work or you can own your own business. But the ordinary worker, there are that parallels between the ordinary worker of today and the serf of the Middle Ages. Um, interestingly, it was the Black Death which effectively began the end of serfdom in Europe because mm -hmm. suddenly there was no shortage of land, but there was a huge shortage of workers. And serfs found they were able to suddenly start charging for their labour uh, or, uh, or, or um, just they were able to leave. And, and um, uh, landlords, lords would, would, would pay the serf in order to keep him on the on the grounds and the serf could demand his freedom. And this gave rise to a new paid underclass who were handling money for the very first time. And so mm -hmm. to take their money from them the leaders began to impose poll taxes. And uh, then the, the uh, peasants decided they didn't like these poll taxes. And across Europe, uh, shortly after the Black Death, we saw these peasants' revolts. 
which was, mm -hmm. you know, another battle between the ordinary worker and the leader. This is a never ending dance where the leader has tried to take an what is the lowly man's all throughout history. And it's a dance that continues today. Right. In, in the modern day, would you say income tax is sort of the most important form of taxation for the states? And that is most consequential for say society. And how did we go from having no income tax? Let's, look at from the UK and the US to now having income tax, which is responsible for a huge percentage of Western government's revenue these days. You design a society by the way that you tax it. And so, you know, going back to that thing, if you want a free society, you have low levels of taxation and you have high levels of individual responsibility. So if you have low levels of taxes, but then, then the state can't provide welfare because it doesn't have the income, then it becomes the responsibility of citizens to set up their own forms of welfare. And we saw this in the 19th century, the cooperative societies, the friendly societies in both Europe and in America, you had them as well. Income tax is, is a big moral question with income tax because... It's responsible for roughly 50% of government revenue worldwide, mm -hmm. if you include things like national insurance and payroll taxes. Mm -hmm. It's the biggest source of government revenue worldwide. And yet, I find it highly problematic because, A, I think a worker should be able to keep what's his. Um, and secondly, you are penalising productivity. And if you start out with nothing in your life, all you have is your labour. And yet you are constantly taxed on it, constantly, relentlessly. Mm -hmm. The power of compounding and inter incremental growth work against you because you're constantly having what your own chipped away at. And we don't tax capital or assets in anything like the same way we do income tax. And that's mm -hmm. why we have this society that's geared toward asset owners and geared against the worker and why it's so hard to start out with nothing and make your way to the top just through your labour. If you want to do it, you have to do, start your own business or become a brilliant investor or a brilliant sportsman or a rock star or something mm -hmm. like that. That's not typical mm -hmm. labor. So I think it incentivizes society in the wrong way. But the reason we have it is that it's a very easy tax to collect. Governments like taxes that are easy to collect. If it costs you five pounds, five dollars to collect ten dollars of revenue, that's inefficient. But if it costs you ten mm -hmm. cents to collect ten dollars of revenue, that's a very efficient form of tax from the point of view of the government. And it's an easy form of tax to collect because the government says to the company, you have to collect this tax for us. And if you don't, we'll, we'll uh, close your company down. So it puts the burden of the company becomes the tax collector. And the other reason it's easy to collect is it's deducted at source. So you never actually receive the money you've worked for. You receive the money you've worked for after the taxes have been deducted. And, um, it's been proven that a freelancer doing the same job as an ordinary worker will pay much lower levels of taxes because the tax is paid after the event. There's much more scope to write things off, to make accidental or deliberate non-compliance. Um, and so why governments like income tax. It's easy to collect and you can collect lots of it off every single worker. If you taxed well, you hear a lot of left-wing arguments, we should have a wealth tax. It's just a much harder never mind the rights and wrongs of it it's a much harder tax to administer um you can't deduct wealth at source <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as it's accumulated right, right. you have to deduct it after the event mm -hmm. and then there's so much scope for non-compliance 
and that's one of the main reasons we don't have wealth taxes is just the practicalities of it right um how did we get income tax well um got income tax in the uk for the first time to raise money to pay for the napoleonic war you got it in america for the first time abraham lincoln gave it to you if there's abraham lincoln's presented as this great champion of freedom but man he was obsessed with protecting tax revenue he imposed income tax on americans for the very first time he gave you your law that if you leave america and go and live in another country you still have to pay federal income taxes mm -hmm. and um you know there's a strong argument in the book that the reason he went to war in the first place was to protect union tax revenues he was worried about losing all the confederate tax revenues because at the time the confederate states were paying something like 80 or 90% of federal tax revenues uh, which is why the confederate states wanted to leave so the but then income tax disappeared again in america after about 1875 and then you got it again in 1913 i think it was and um the there was all sorts of reasons why you got it it's because to 1913 most of the federal revenue came from goods entering and leaving the country tax duties and they wanted another source of income tax system was a bit messy and income tax was simple in the uk we got we abandoned it after the napoleonic wars and then we bought it back in the 1840s but it replaced like 200 petty taxes it simplified the tax system mm -hmm. But it never really affected another reason you, you get income tax. You've got income tax in the United States that is an, an untold story is that the prohibitionist movement campaigned dramatically for the imposition of income tax yeah. because without it, prohibition could never have happened because federal the, the government was so reliant on taxes on alcohol. But once you had income tax, the prohibitionist movement can argue, ah, well, we don't need, you can make alcohol illegal now because you no longer rely on the tax revenue for it. It's an untold story, but it's uh, absolutely. <laughs> Taxes and no alcohol. So, yeah. yeah. But in any case, World War One started. Right. World War One in the UK that the thresholds of tax suddenly changed. So uh, prior to World War One, it was only the very rich who paid any kind of income tax. But with World War One, um, more and more people were dragged into the tax net. And in the case of America, World War Two was the big catalyst. The 19, the Revenue Act of 1942, which um, brought ordinary Americans into the tax brackets. But mm -hmm. prior to 1942, ordinary Americans did not pay income tax. Right, right. And it was to pay for the war effort. And you had a song written by Irving Berlin to to persuade ordinary Americans that this income tax was a good thing. And the lyric of the song went, I paid my income tax today, a thousand planes to bomb Berlin. Um, they've got to be paid for. Um, I paid my income tax today or something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, oh, yeah, they've got to be a thousand planes to bomb Berlin. They must be paid for. And I chipped in. I paid my income tax today. That's the lyric. And so was ever the link between tax and war. <laughs> more mm -hmm. apparent mm -hmm. but this was supposed to be a happy song that made americans proud to pay their income tax then the war ended and as with every crisis yep. the level of freedom never goes back to the level it was before the crisis right. started In income tax was normalized and it never disappeared mm -hmm. after world war ii it's remained and it's just steadily grown ever since a lesson we should learn today yeah, i think it was milton friedman who basically 
um, helped implement the system. He later regretted it, where the it would, the income tax would be taken off the top, right? It was sometime sometime I think after the forties or fifties, and because prior to that it was self reporting, you would at the end of the year you would report your taxes and then you get that tax money away. And then it was Friedman who thought it'd be more efficient if they the employer just took that taxes, right? He, 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 he took it at the source. Yeah, that's what I talk about when I say mm-hmm. deducted at source. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Milton Freeman is a great hero. I didn't know he was responsible for that. But if he was, we need to revise our views of Milton Freeman. Yeah, well, he later he later uh, regretted it. He didn't realize at the time. He thought it would be a more sort of efficient way of, of – and a more lean way, less bureaucratic way to just do it that way. Uh, you know. Well, he's yeah. right about that. Yeah. But yeah. The, the, the consequence of that efficiency is that it grew. Mm-hmm. Right. And as I say, government's tax where it's easy to collect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we're learning right now that, uh, you know, after you're done with an emergency, the uh, emergency powers don't necessarily go away. They get implemented through other means or they just stay. They they never go back to the levels they were before the crisis started. Mm -hmm. That's right. We still have to take off our shoes in in the United States for uh, (laughs) from the war tear. And then we have the no fly list. You're wearing masks mm -hmm, over there, aren't you? Still wearing masks in California. They just in L.A., a couple days ago, got rid of the mask mandate indoor, uh, so that that was that was nice. Much of the rest of the country, though, was, you know, much more what's a pro freedom nation you live in. Oh my god, uh, you sound like one of my relatives in England now. We we always had this fight, but yeah, I mean, California California is not a good representation of America, right? Um, you made a very interesting point about the taxation of labor and how that shifts society's incentives, and as we know, wealthy people invest in assets and then they can borrow against those assets and then not have to pay tax. So you don't take, pay tax on borrowed money. And whereas people who are starting to, who are starting out their lives and who want to reach a more comfortable level, a higher economic level on, on the socioeconomic ladder, uh, who are starting from nothing where they're, they're being penalized all along the way. So they can't even accumulate those enough money to buy those assets, which are then going to protect their wealth. And so this is very much a regressive, Income tax is regressive against young people and people who are starting out. You know, I always say this myself. It's like California, for example, we have a 10% state income tax on top of your federal tax. It even goes even higher than that depending on your income. But if you're making under a certain amount, you're not going to pay federal income taxes, but you'll still pay California income tax. And so it's like what's progressive exactly about charging somebody a 10% tax on you know making 50k 60k 70k right these are people who are just starting to get by and you're, you're taking money from them why do you think it is that people on the left can't see that they can't see how they're actually hurting the very people who they they think they're helping and then they're helping the very people who they claim they want to hurt which is the very wealthy who benefit from the tax system by being able to shelter their money in assets that they can just borrow against why can't they see that because they're incapable of distinguishing between income and capital it's that simple. Mm-hmm. The super rich don't rely on their labor or their income right. for their wealth. And I guess it's because everyone, as soon as you say tax, everyone just thinks income tax. Right. And they forget that there are other forms of tax. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean. It's, a, it's an education thing. Do you think, do you think that's, that, that's all it is or do you think there's something more to that? Because someone had to, I mean, some of these people aren't dumb, right? Like, why, why can't they they understand the difference? Or is it just that... I can't, I can't. I think ideas are a bit, ideas are viral and you get, you get taken in with ideas and often it's hard to see beyond the idea and that particular idea has got taken hold. 
um, I mean, I'm not saying, I don't think all the left think that, right. but there's a large portion that cannot distinguish between income and capital mm-hmm. uh, when, it, when it comes to talking about tax. Mm-hmm. I, th- I also think there's a, there's a I'm, I'm not crazy about the definition left and right wing. It's, it's convenient. And I tend to look, and I'm sure you do as well, Ashton, look through the world more of a prism of authoritarian yes, versus absolutely. libertarian. But, but if we're looking at our political compass, there is definitely a thing on the authoritarian mm-hmm. left that wants to control whatever, and probably to a certain extent on the authoritarian right, that wants to control what people do. And it doesn't like people doing things and getting on. And there's a lot of jealousy. There's a culture of envy. And all these reasons are also contributive to this thing mm-hmm. of wanting to take the proceeds of people's labor mm-hmm. because it's a form of control. I mentioned at the beginning of the program, taxes control. And, uh, you know, you control people through the tax system. You incentivize them, you guide behavior. It's a form, you taxes control. Every king, every emperor, every government, if they lose their tax revenue, they lose their power. And there's, there is this need amongst, uh, you know, human beings. I don't know why, but there's this need to want to control other <laughs> human beings instead of just going, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's not my business. You, if you want to go and do that, you do that. It's, it's your business, not mine. It's quite. Yeah, it's, it's a religious thing. It's a. It used to take. It used to happen through religion. Now it happens through, you know, whatever's replaced religion, Twitter. <laughs> but the, but you know, people's behaviour would be controlled. You know, we don't people doing that and make it a sin. You know, that's mm-hmm. how people would. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 now it used to be priests who would be the thought leaders, and now it's people who host podcasts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not. I'm, I'm not kidding you. I mean, you know, it's people on Twitter who are the thought. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, they've sort of, but the, and uh, but there is this need, not amongst everyone, but amongst a lot of people, to control everyone else and going. We must tax this and tax that as part of it. Mm-hmm. I think the authoritarian, libertarian, sort of that that four square co- quadrant form of um, political analysis is definitely more apt than just typical left or right divide i agree with that uh, when it comes to taxation though it's funny but everyone everyone thinks they're in the bottom half you think so you know everyone thinks yeah they're i guess, I guess yeah yeah. I, yeah there's a few people right but then you do the like i did that political compass yeah. test and i hated the questions because there were so many well you know there were so many variables within the question but you know I, i've written a book called life after the state mm-hmm. So that's about as anarchic a pro-libertarian mm-hmm. anarchy a title as you will ever have. And I've described tax as daylight robbery. And yet I do that test and I come out centre-right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, what I, what I guess what I actually am and what I think I am, there must be a bit of divergence there. Yeah, I, I don't think too many people on the left consider themselves authoritarian left, even as they... Uh, want to control various aspects of people's lives, like what they can eat and what kind of energy they can use and what yeah, they can they, watch and what. <laughs> I think they think they think that that property, it's a it's a it's a respect for for me. Your labour is your private property. You should mm-hmm. own your labour and the proceeds that derive mm-hmm. from it. They don't have the same respect for private property. And but property rights are sort of, you know, a key founding block of a free right. society. If you don't have private property rights, then then you know it's game over. And but there is a core. Just look at the reaction to you know a riot in wherever, and a smashed window gets a window gets smashed, and somebody's shop gets mm-hmm. looted. 
It's like, oh, well, they're the poor in society. Oh, right. well, they got persecuted yeah. 200 mm-hmm. years ago. Oh, whatever it is. And it's like, no, that one person is stealing from mm-hmm. another. And, and, but they, there is a sort of sense of entitlement to other people's property that exists, you know, amongst certain factions. Yeah, well, raiding a Gucci store is what really brings equality at the end of the day, as we, as we well know. That's what, move, <laughs> that's what moves society forward. Uh, but speaking of, of that sort of that the authoritarian sort of libertarian divide, uh, one way I think you can drive a wedge in between the authoritarian left and libertarian left, because there are libertarian lefts out there, and, and I have respect for them. I like a lot of them. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah is through i think bernie sanders has he used to a, be a tad of the libertarian yeah he used too. to have an angle i think len greenwald's yeah. probably one of the best examples of that who's a just a diehard yeah. civil libertarian and also a person of the left and i think a lot of the libertarian left maybe even dorsey might be a part of that although he you know he, he didn't really stand up for that that faction before but like you know i think it, a lot of the libertarian left are gravitating towards bitcoin i you know you, the authoritarian left hate bitcoin like the elizabeth warrens and those kinds of people hate it uh, because it mm-hmm. it goes against their control. With with respect to so here, here's here's one way that I think you can drive a wedge between the like we said the authoritarian and libertarian sort of people who are into let's just say for on the left for for the purposes of the discussion. You make a case that taxation and tell me if I'm wrong about this. So, so you have governments implementing something like the income tax and the modern taxation system we have today in the West and large part of the world, enables the prolonging of wars while also encouraging basically maybe indebtedness that then devalues the currency and may also lead to prolonging of wars. Can you make the connection? Is there a connection between our modern tax system and, say, the prolonging of of wars that we've seen in the 20th century and into this century as well? Oh, there's a, there's not, there's a lot more than a connection. Like, there's like one cannot exist without the other you know without tax if you got rid of all taxes then war would not Mm -hmm. be possible i'm serious it sounds ridiculous but 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 tax is how leaders pay for war whether it's the tax of the people that are going to war or the tax of the people that they're fighting against you know through plunder and conquest you know that you, you conquer another country you know vladimir putin conquers ukraine He's going to plunder it and then he's going to tax right. it. You know, what does he want? He wants the land, the labor, the produce, the profit. Um, but the but taxes make wars possible. But bizarrely, war makes taxes possible. Because, you know, if you'd said to ordinary Americans in 1935, in the middle of the Great Depression, right, we're going to tax everyone. 10, 15, 20 percent, mm-hmm. whatever it is. They would have gone, no, you're not. But suddenly with 1942, you know, you've been bombed by the Japanese. Suddenly there's a justification for it. So war, and and it's the same. There's a long history of leaders who've attempted to impose new taxes in times of peace and and lost their job as a result, been overthrown, been voted out. But it never happened in times of war. You need the emergency. So tax makes war possible and war makes tax possible. And the two are linked. And by the way, I count inflation and currency debasement as a type of tax. Our friend Milton Friedman called it taxation without legislation, which is exactly what it is. But it is still a tax. It's a way of transferring wealth from one person to another, of, of, of seizing wealth from one person. But again, 
there's a long history of war and inflation. You, you pay for a war by debasing the currency. We paid for World War One by coming off the gold standard. Uh, a dollar bought you or a pound bought you a lot more in 1939 than it did in 1945. Um, you know, there's always an inflation during a war. Uh, in, and the Napoleonic Wars, prices tripled. Wow. Um, and I'm sure, you know, we're, this war has started with Russia and they've already got um, one of the reasons Putin banned the sale of ammonia nitrate was because of food inflation mm -hmm. in Russia. And, and now there's, that's led to food inflation in the rest of Europe because nobody's got any fertilizer. And so, and, and you know, we've seen all the waging war on Putin with, through the monetary system that's going on. It's incredibly, it's incredible watching it. I, I bet China's watching this and going, right, that's what, when we seize Taiwan, that's what the America's going to do to us. We better get rid right. of our dollars now while we can. But the, because um, they're lending, you know, China, they've seen what the US will do and China will be able to right. defend China's against it. Thing. Mm -hmm. Putin, China, Putin seems pretty vulnerable to it so far but we're on we're on day five there's a long way to go in this but yeah war tax war the two make each other possible yeah with the, with the uh, russia example right now so the only thing that might so the ruble by the way is off by i think 40 something percent inflation in the last few days from this whole episode and yeah i tried to i tried to short it on sunday night but my broker wouldn't <laughs> let me and then i woke up on on uh Monday morning, this morning, and it's fallen thirty percent. And I'm not not buying it after it's just fallen thirty percent. Although I'm sure it's a it's a good yeah, trade to I, go for. I wouldn't be long the no. ruble at the moment. Can't see a lot of demand <laughs> for rubles. I don't think so. Uh, and so what? They've also blocked some of his foreign reserves, or are talking about seizing it. And that might be yeah. the thing that puts if he does back down or takes an off ramp. That might be the the kind of pressure that that is responsible for that is is uh, by taking his government revenues is 600 billion dollars yeah. and basically seizing them up i think west western governments are quite good at putting not necessarily putting pressure on the person directly but putting pressure on the people that will put pressure right. on the person and so western governments are going for the oligarchs hoping that the oligarchs put pressure on putin um what i find really interesting is over the last 10 or 15 years Russia has been relentlessly buying mm -hmm. gold and it's dramatically increased its gold reserves. And, you know, according to my friend Konstantin Kissin, who's, a, who's Russian, he says Russia has been preparing for this invasion for a long time. And uh, but looking at some of the action that's been reported on social media, it doesn't look like they're that, that organized. The, the tanks run out of petrol. But anyway, the. If it has been preparing and it's been preparing for de-dollarization and all the rest of it, you know, it's no surprise that it's been buying gold. And as I'm sure you know, China's been accumulating mm -hmm. vast amounts of gold as well. It, it, it's the biggest producer in the world. It's also the biggest importer. It doesn't export a single ounce. Um, do you think so they have more than the United China's States? China's gold holdings are probably already bigger. Hmm. Yeah, I do. Um, they've declared much less. But if you factor, if you just look at gold imports through, through just look at gold imports to China, Chinese production, and uh, you add the two together over the last 15 years and, and then divide the number by two. So you assume that half of all the gold that's been produced and mined has gone into private hands and the other half's gone into the state hands. In all reality, it's probably more than half gone into the state hands. But if you just assume half, then China has more gold wow. than the United States. And that what they're doing is what they declare to the, um, uh, what are they called? The uh, IMF is like the minimum believable amount because China's not ready 
for a confrontation. China suddenly declared we have more gold than the United States. That would be the biggest declaration of war ever. I'd, I'd like to be interested to see what happens to the US dollar if that happened. But, but in the case of Russia, wonders with all the freezing of the accounts and everything that's gone on, if Russia will have to sell its gold, which I guess it would do in Dubai, in order to fund some of what's going on. I don't think we're quite at that point yet. Well, we're quite a long way from that point, but it's an interesting thought. Experiment. What do you think about the dollar status as the reserve currency? Do you see that being upended in this decade? Do you, if so, what could possibly replace it? I mean, will people really trust Chinese money? And what, what role do you think the um, the central bank digital currencies will have? Do you think they will have a because they're definitely coming out, do you think they'll have a negative effect, a neutral effect, or a, a positive effect on ensuring the dollar status as the reserves currency of the world? Um, okay, there's two questions there. Will the dollar still be the world's reserve currency in 10 years' time? Probably mm -hmm. just, but it won't be as strong as it is now. The big thing, the big... Um, uh, like the ring, as in the Lord of the Rings, the ring of power is owning the banking system and SWIFT mm -hmm. and all of that. Once it loses that, if that ring goes into the fires of Mordor, <laughs> then the dollar goes with it. So um, that's, the, that's the key thing. And I guess the more Bitcoin expands and grows, the more it becomes a threat, I heard. I don't know if it's bullshit or not, but I heard somebody saying on Twitter that Putin was considering, considering selling gold for Bitcoin. Hmm. Well, America can't control that. Yep. So that's that's an interesting... Uh, and I I know, I think Bitcoin use in Russia is higher than anywhere else in the world. Or new oh, right. Russians use it more than anyone else. Hmm. So I, I gather, yeah, and Ukraine is like fifth. I think Nigeria is second. Can't remember. Mm -hmm. You'd agree. think it would be America, no. but apparently it isn't. I, I, I need that, that's a that might be fake news, but it's something I read at some point. Um, the if the you always read that the Chinese have got designs. I, I think we can discount the ruble, right? But you always read that the Chinese have got designs on reserve currency status, and you know China's keep trying to keep the value of its currency low so that it can carry on exporting its deflation. Mm -hmm. But that sort of globalization model seems to be falling apart a little bit. Um, but if China backed its money with its gold, and they were saying their, their CBDC was going to be gold backed. doesn't appear that it now is. Because um, they've already launched it, haven't they, with the Winter Olympics? I believe so. I'm not sure. I haven't followed it. But if China wanted to change the dollar, all it needs to do is back its money with its gold. And then, it, and then it's not competing against China. It's competing mm -hmm. against gold, which uh, is a rather different dynamic. But I don't—I just don't think China, with its authoritarian tendencies, yeah. is likely to do that, unless it suits it to do it temporarily just to usurp the United States. Um, so it's very Hayekian competing mm -hmm. currencies. What's happening? Because you've got private bodies. He called them private bodies, but, you know, private bodies, open source bodies, corporations. Facebook's trying to do its own coin. It, it can't do it at the moment, but that won't last forever. Um, you know, Amazon points, they're all issuing money of one kind or another. 
the power of Facebook coin would be extraordinary because it's network. Yeah, network that's why they're all so free big. You could send me, you could send me my enormous fee for doing this podcast over WhatsApp in Facebook coin, and uh, you know, so, um, but so I think the dollar's power on a relative basis will not be what it was in ten years' time, just because there'll be a plethora. The, the competition will have risen both in value and in number. We're going into a world, world, say probably until 2010, where there were national currencies, a few corporate points, you know, air miles or whatever, and gold. And now I think we're going to have corporate coins. Um, we're going to have, uh, we've got all sorts of crypto coins. We've got gold, silver, and national mm-hmm. currencies. So there's a lot more competition and that will erode the dollar mm-hmm. supremacy. Yeah, I think that also leads to probably maybe just having sort of five na- national currencies left, whereas most, the vast majority of them sort of go under, which has been kind of the case with fiat currencies. If you track them long enough, the vast, vast, vast majority of them have gone under, of course. Yeah. And so it, it's... Yeah, the... Um... Africa mm-hmm. coin or Asia coin, I doubt they'll be able to yeah. coordinate it in the same way they did the euro. I wonder if the euro was a fluke. They were talking about having that that coin, Canadian, America, and Mexico coin at one point. Um, yeah. But I think that's gone away. It was about 12 or 15 years ago. I can't see that happening because the problem is, you know, any co- one country might want to do it to, to, to become something valuable. But so many countries use monetary policy as a right. domestic tool and they all want to print money so that they can do whatever it is governments do. I, I think there'll be a reluctance to cede that part of the power. Effectively, you, you're you ceding mm-hmm. the power to print money by joining yeah. a, a, a confederation of countries. And I think a lot of governments would be reluctant to do mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think with respect to the China possibly overtaking the United States in the currency status realm. If their history is any indication with respect to their securities have been listed on you know, stock exchanges, particularly American ones, the amount of frauds that, that have been on, um, I just don't see how people, large amount of people are going to trust Xi with uh, monetary integrity, right? So I think Bitcoin, something like Bitcoin has a better shot yeah, I mean, even with the Federal Reserve and everything that it does, people do still, do still trust yeah. we have a judicial system in the US more than they trust <laughs> Putin and yeah. whoever. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, I think that's right. And, you know, we still at least have a semblance of uh, checks and balances and some transparency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about the – so these last couple of months, a lot of people think it's been a huge endorsement for Bitcoin. Um you had the situation in Canada where they declared a emergency order, Trudeau did, and basically seized people's bank accounts yeah. for even th- nominal things like donating like twenty dollars to the trucker protest, right? And uh, they they added cryptocurrency as you know part of their anti money laundering campaign, and then they flagged a few crypto wallets that you know they found to be supporting the trucker protests and now with the situation with russia we have a people are predicting like a run on the banks as we discussed you're looking at like 40 50 percent inflation in a matter of days there uh, people have also been donating to ukraine 
through Bitcoin. And, you know, who, who knows how many Russians are now moving or attempting to move more of their wealth into that. Do you think that the last couple months, particularly with the Skanda and Russia-Ukraine episode, have been any anywhere near significant to push Bitcoin adoption across the masses? Yes, I do. Um, my first taste of this was back in, I think, 2013, it would have been. Maybe it was even sooner. Maybe it was as early as 2011, where Wiki, do you remember right. WikiLeaks was really big back then? And it was seen as a real threat mm-hmm. to the United States and a serious embar- embarrassment to the US military in particular with all the stuff that it was exposing. And people were donating to WikiLeaks via PayPal. And then the America did its thing of cutting off the PayPal link. And then people started giving to WikiLeaks via Bitcoin. And then within about, within less than a month of that happening, um, Satoshi was like, no, no, don't do this, don't do this. And then eventually he, his, his, his line was the hornet's nest is, the hornets are out of the nest or whatever the line was. And he, ret- he just stood down from the project altogether. Because it was very early in Bitcoin's evolution. It's probably too early to be making mm-hmm. an enemy of the United States authorities when it just wanted to get beneath the radar and spread. You know, that guy was a genius. My God, right. I think he must be the cleverest person who's ever lived. Mm. But I mean, his reading of, of things was amazing. And he was probably like, you know, he'd seen what had happened to the PGP dude in, 90, in the early 1990s when they arrested him just for inventing this privacy technology. And he didn't want it to happen to him, which is probably why he disappeared and why he's kept his identity secret all that time. But so we saw it then. steal $9 million from GoFundMe that was destined for the truckers. And Mm -hmm. that was literally theft. And presumably there's going to be all sorts of legal suits in America, uh, in Canada at some point. Um, But good luck trying to win against the government in a legal suit because you're taking on the whole system. But that was theft and they had no right to do that. And But I guess from the government's point of view, these truckers were creating all sorts of disruption and they needed it to end. And so they would take whatever measures are necessary to make it end. You know, they won't see they won't see the truckers as these in the same way that people sharing videos of them on Twitter will see them. But I just looked at that and mm-hmm. I was like, Bitcoin fixes this. And then I've got a I was interviewing a guy uh, who he used a pseudonym, but he was an American tech guy working in Ukraine. And he got evacuated from Ukraine last week in Kiev. And he's based, I think it was in Dusseldorf, but it was in a German town not far from the border. Uh, Sorry, he was in Poland. He was in Poland, not far from the border. And um, he was in an Airbnb, but he was just trying to coordinate this huge campaign to get money to the Ukrainians, to get arms to the Ukrainians, clothes, essential supplies, everything. And he's doing a fantastic job, this bloke. And he was speaking so articulately about it. And then I, um, my girlfriend went to give him some money and it was like a GoFundMe thing. I, I forget what it was. And they'd cut it off. Now, why the Americans would cut that off or whoever would cut it off as it was going to help the Ukrainians, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But again, it just shows you the, the weakness yep. of centralized systems. And, but fortunately, this guy was really bright. And he was saying, look, you can donate cryptocurrencies as well. And 
the cryptocurrencies will be getting through where the fiat money isn't. So, yeah, in times like this, there is a real mm -hmm. visible use case for circumventing middleman, the middleman, a.k.a. there is a real use case for decentralized. Yeah, uh, yeah you talk currency. about what Gina Satoshi was. I mean, it really, I don't think it's, it's stayed enough because this person had to have had sort of an expert level. I think he was a lawyer. That's my coming from a lawyer's background. I, I believe he's a lawyer. Some people think it's Saba, who's also a lawyer. You you have a you have an unreasonable admiration. Well, one of the good ones. He's one of the good ones, I think. But I don't think he was a practicing lawyer. I think he has a legal he has a legal background. Um, yeah. uh, obviously, a brilliant for sure background in yeah and in, in contracts contract. and in terms of uh, you know the the technology computer science angle of it as well. Uh, in terms of monetary history, he must have had an incredible amount of knowledge on that and philosophy. Uh, so this is this must have been such a well rounded, brilliant Huge. person. Mm -hmm. Reasonable coder, um, old school, C++, old school. Um, everyone says the code for Bitcoin was shit, but it worked and it was it was resilient. Uh, as you say, history, database yeah. skills. How good must he have? What kind of database skills must he have had? You know, unbelievable. I, and that's why I think he was not old, but he can't have been a guy in his twenties right. because no. I just don't believe you can have that much. Yeah, he was absolutely. too wise. He'd need to have lived. He'd need to have been around for 20 years or something and acquired some wisdom to be able I to agree. do what he did. Yep. But he was um, definitely a prodigy. You know, the, his timing was immaculate as well. He's not spent a single, mm -hmm. he's not spent any single coin. He must've had money. He must've already made money. He ran his own business. Mm -hmm. He was brilliant PR. That was amazing. You know, Bitcoin's got the best PR ever and nobody's paid to do it. It's all free. It's all with the investors. If you, if you want to increase um, Bitcoin's mm -hmm. PR, increase the investor base because everyone who's in, into Bitcoin is, is right. trying to orange pill everyone else. Yeah, but he he must have had money working on the project as long as he did. He must have had money from another source. Maybe it was from a rich family. Maybe he already had a successful business. Mm -hmm. He had time on his hands, so maybe he'd sold his business or somebody else was running it for him. I think he was a tech. He was from that generation of tech entrepreneurs that he'd, um, he'd probably be now, I'd say, mm -hmm. he was mid, mid to late 50s. Yeah. Is, 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 is yeah, I, I agree with that. And I reckon. If I was to guess, I'd say he was born in 1965. <laughs> a... he, he, was already, he was already checking out, you know, give or take three years, but but he was already, you know, he was on the Cypherpunk's mailing list. He was into all that stuff in the 90s. So he must have been probably mm -hmm. at least late teens in the 90s. Yeah. The 90s. other thing about him, which was incredible, was the fact that, so Bitcoin kind of came out the perfect time that it needed to because 2008, no, right? 2008. And then by, by 2012, it was starting to, yeah, yeah, yeah. The white paper was 2008. 2008. And then, um, took a few years of a uh, sort of a ramp up to make its way into being something that people outside like the cypherpunk community and geeks who were on Gox and things like that knew about. And, and then here we are sort of in the, in the late teens and then early 2020s. And now we're seeing the dual threat of both authoritarianism coming from the government and the censorship that they are basically trying to implement both financial censorship in some cases that we saw in, in Canada 
Um, and then on top of that, we see the, the issues with big tech and how they can basically destroy your economic livelihood by a whim and not even have to explain it. So, and Bitcoin provides the answer to both of those and the escape valve to both of those, which is phenomenal. And not to mention all the other cryptocurrency offshoots that came after Bitcoin, largely guided by its example. Do you think that the, so you talk a little bit about the nation state in your book and tell me if you think this is, this is correct. Sort of like maybe an an unbundling might be in our future where nation states are maybe in a not opportune position for this era that we're going into with difficulties collecting taxation with these multinational corporations being able to split their profits in every different place um, with the rise of a lot of decentralization and, and decentralized finance and hurting their sort of tax revenue. At the same time, you have the demography issue, which is all the rich states are having basically no kids. And all these social welfare programs were premised on the funding of, you know, uh, like having like 30 workers for every one retiree, not one retiree per one worker, or maybe even two retirees per one worker. What do you see as in this century, there's two ways it can go. Either we go into this sort of Chinese Orwellian social credit state where they can utilize data to control even more aspects of your life and, and make you into more of a surf or we have the nation state unbundling and they sort of become weaker and then there's more you know decentralization across society and people you know are living in you know smaller communities and it's it's more of a, a promising vision how do you see that playing out or will it be some parts of the world will be one part some parts of the other well it's a huge question and i th- the, the the short answer would be i see a bit of all of that playing out um the nation state is a model relatively recent really 200 years old i mean in the cases of you know you, you look at an island like the united kingdom and it's you know england's been around for much longer but you know where england and where is scotland and what's been united and what's wales and you know before 1066 it was all um different kingdoms within england the thing that defines the nation state, you know, Germany's mm-hmm. only 200 and bit years old. Italy's 150 years old. The United States is, what, 250 years old, something like that. Um, you know, they were relatively recent, these countries. Now, they're immensely powerful and established. And so it's it, they're not going to disappear overnight. But they are designed, tax systems that define the nation states... Uh, were built around the Industrial Revolution and the physical movement of goods in a physical world. Physical workers going to work in one place, based in one location, Mm -hmm. not workers all moving around. Goods coming across a visible border uh, where you tax them at the point of entry. Um, The digital world is very different. We're more and more of us becoming freelance. We're moving more and more between countries. Our income is digital. It's on the internet. We don't necessarily need to be in one jurisdiction. You might find that um, we're going to see a whole new class of digital nomad worker. We're already seeing it, who has a, lives by a different set of rules to workers based in individual jurisdictions. Where is the good provi- provided? Where At what point does it go across the border? Where are the profits? Where are the mm-hmm. this and that? It's just a lot more muddy. And that's, you know, the, if you look at how the tax systems have failed to come to terms with the globalized large tech who can put their IP here and their profits there and 
they, they just the tax systems haven't been able to keep up because they're designed around a physical world and all the wealth now is digital or not all of the wealth but a large portion of the wealth is digital and at the same time governments are taking on all these huge obligations they're trying to pay for these right. obligations by debasing their currency we have the digital economy offering currencies that don't debase at the same rate um so pressure and many sovereign nations as we now know the nation states are just going to go bust and so there's a chance that a bit like the soviet union other countries will just emerge from it it won't be as clean cut and clear as it is in theory or as it is in a book it'll just be a lot more muddy and messy but new, new jurisdictions will emerge you know all these bitcoin guys are trying to form their own little citadels in places well good luck trying to get recognized by um, as nation states, but maybe, maybe, you know, because you need the recognition of whoever it is to be a United Nations or someone to get recognized as a nation. But, you know, some of them will. And but the reason the United Nations will be reluctant to recognize them is because ideologically they'll be different. But so I do see many nation states as we now know them certainly struggling and in many cases disappearing. And we do seem to be going you know, Yugoslavia 25 years ago was one country and now it's, I don't even know how many countries there are in the Balkans. Mm -hmm. Catalonia's trying to leave Spain. The UK left the European Union. The Scotland's trying to leave the UK. There does seem to be this, Texas is talking about seceding. Florida's talking about seceding. I, I think it's unlikely, but it's still possible. You know, there does do, do seem to be this move towards smaller self-governed bodies. Mm -hmm. And I hope it happens, but I think it's going to be a slow and drawn out and painful process. I think mm -hmm. for me, I'm a big champion of local rule. And, I, you know, I think if the people of, say, the United Kingdom were to break up into something akin to the Anglo-Saxon heptarchy and, you know, Kent were to be one kingdom and Wessex were to be another kingdom and so on, then all the people who think, you know, have one philosophy, they can all move to Kent and all the people who have another philosophy can move to Wessex. And the the, the country that has the best philosophy will will win in the prosperity stakes and then the country that's got the weaker ones will look at the, the other one and go oh yeah actually we were wrong we need to do this and create a healthy competition um again nice in theory much more muddy and less clear in practice but the nation state relatively in the context of history is a relatively recent model and the countries as we now know them right are actually fairly recent inventions. And so in, there's a case that over the next 50 years, mm -hmm. many of them will disintegrate. Yeah, I, I, I don't think a lot of Americans realize that Italy was a, <laughs> a series of like principalities and it's younger than the United States as a country. Uh, and Germany was kind of the same thing, different regions, you have Bavaria. And... It, was, it was, they started to unify it. Yeah. Right. It was Bismarck who unified Germany and, and, it was um, in the 1880s they started to unify Italy, only as recently as the 1880s, but it was really Mussolini who completed the job. It was a sort of 50-year process, 40-year process, really. And um, But yeah, and you go to Italy, I mean, not so much now, but, you know, Sicily speaks a different language. And most Italians, certainly uh, age 50 plus, speak their local language, whether it's Venetian or Genovese or Roman or... Or, or Sicilian or Neapolitan, mm -hmm. whatever the language is, and they speak Italian. You know, it's 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 a uh, it's there's a lot of crossover between the two, but they are 
there's a much more sense of individual identity in Italy than there is in other parts. So your, your prognosis on the nation state is hopeful, at least from an opt and optimistic, at least from my standpoint. But then there's also the the whole issue with the social credit system and the the CBDCs are going to come out and the ability of governments now, particularly those on the authoritarian side, although we see that otherwise free countries can become authoritarian a lot quicker than we thought. And they now have powers. Yeah, uh, they, they're going to have <laughs> powers that amazing. like, you know, Stalin would have had wet dreams over, right? Like in terms of their ability to analyze every single aspect of your life and penalize you if you're going on this website, buying this good, playing this video game, you know, and your, your children can't go to school now and you can't take a ride now and you can't go in the airport now. And, you know, that brand of authoritarianism, like the sophisticated tech version, the Chinese version, looks like it's going to be quite appealing for a few people out there. So how, how do you see the sort of authoritarian angle of this, the, the Orwellian tech future that we're headed towards in certain parts of the world? Well, I think some countries are going to adopt CBDCs and some of those countries that adopt CBDCs are going to make their money programmable. And the countries that do that, I don't think they realize what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, I think some sure. countries are going to insist on des designing their own programmable money. And like most government IT schemes, they're not going to be able to make it work. <laughs> it's going to be crap. And so people will use the ones that do work. But yeah, you know, we know from your health records that you have had the vaccine and therefore you're going to get this rate of interest on your CBDC. <laughs> and we're going to give you a Brucey bonus of £100 if you have the booster. We know from your medical records that you haven't had this vaccine. And therefore, uh, you don't get this month's UBI. Mm -hmm. You know, all that stuff's going to happen in some places. And some citizens are going to get trapped in it. Mm -hmm. And trapped in it. And the more entrepreneurial ones are just going to get up and leave. And um, the uh, it's a that's a big battleground in the future. And it's a big battleground for privacy. And it's very, very worrying. The problem they have is inflation. Mm -hmm. And there's so many competing currencies and there's so many alternatives that many will just not use their CBDC. They'll try and use other currencies and retailers mm -hmm. and people will try and accept non-government currencies where they can. But again, if they make it as convenient as possible, then they stand a chance of winning because convenience yes. in the marketplace oh, yeah. wins. So last question, I want to ask you about gold, the whole gold versus Bitcoin debate now gold every single time you think that it it's sort of on this trajectory upwards it, it seems to run into some sort of uh you know downward pressure uh and you know there's a lot of people who think that bitcoin is going to be the the proper store of value and there's still some people that think maybe gold would be why doesn't gold perform the way people <laughs> think it will particularly in in respect to these crises in which it's supposed to be that store of value in that protection piece? Because uh, we live in a world where all the value is digital. Now, digital is what's scalable. The value is in networks. Uh, you know, you look at the growth of the digital economy compared to the physical economy since, I don't know, the late 1990s and the former's eclipsed the latter. And Bitcoin, uh, sorry, gold is the most analog 
asset there is in a world where all the value is digital. It doesn't have the same meaning for people anymore. It, you see gold and it is still captivating, but it doesn't, it, it, it's, it's gone from our everyday life. Once upon a time, we'd be handling gold, we'd be wearing gold. It's just gone from our everyday life. And I think it's, part of me thinks it's become as irrelevant. Uh, you know, I, I'm the first person to have coined mm -hmm. this phrase, by the way, but loads of other people now use it. But it, it's, it's a bit like, you know, the horse was natural transport for 10,000 years. And then we invented the car and the horse became irrelevant. The ho a horse became a liability. And I think there's a bit of that with gold. But they are all their own beasts. Bitcoin goes through phases. It goes through sort of quiet accumulation. Then it goes through, you know, noisy bull market and blow off top. Then it goes through noisy sell off. And then it goes into sort of frustrating consolidation. And we're somewhere between noisy sell off and frustrating consolidation. And then it goes into quiet accumulation again. Similarly, you know, gold had a brilliant bull market from 2001 to 2011. And it went into a bear market, had a great year in 2020. Another little bit of a bear market. All the it's it looks to me as a chartist, you know, the monthly charts done a massive cup and handle, which is a very bullish formation. The weekly chart, you look at the last five years, it's just it's a beautiful consolidation. All the moving averages are converging, tightening. The noose is gripping. It just looks ready to go. And then you look at the weekly thing up. So, you know, maybe maybe for a little bit, gold's going to outshine Bitcoin. And my advice is to own both. Um, I'm damning of gold. I used to love it. I used to love it, but I'm damning of it now. But 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 I still have a very soft spot for it. I wear it around my neck. There you go. It's half an ounce around my neck. Can't wear that in LA very much anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you can't wear watch really LA these days either. All right, Davik, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to have you. Where can people find you? Ashton, could I just plug? Yeah, I've got a Substack letter, uh, frisbee.substack.uk, frisbee.substack.com. And just please sign up to the Substack letter. I've got about, I put out two um, articles a week. On the weekend, I do something a bit thoughtful. And on the week, I put out something about the markets. And then there's a paid one if you want to get hot investment tips, usually <laughs> mining companies, sometimes other stuff. And, um, you know, you'll make a fortune if you invest in my tips. But but anyway, sign up for the free one. And if you're interested in the tips, sign up for the paid one. That's Substack. Thank you. Thank you so much. Cheers, Ashton. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening and we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.